Amen and amen. Thank you very much. It's good to see you this morning. Glad you could be here. I'm glad I could be here. If you would, um, join me in prayer this morning before we get into the Word. I want to just lift our hearts up to the Lord. Uh, The Bible tells us uh, to not be anxious, but to pray and to lay our concerns before the Lord and to trust Him. And so all of us are maybe in different places this morning with different concerns. And then again, we may have some very similar concerns depending on how we felt things are going this week. Um, But the encouraging thing is, as we've sung this morning, we have a God who reigns and a God who has lived and died and rose again on our behalf. And so we have great reason to rejoice even in the midst of very, very difficult times. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we can join together this morning in worship, that we can praise your name, that we can thank you, that together we can testify that we have a living hope in you, Lord Jesus, and no matter what is going on in the world around us, no matter what's even going on in our own hearts, in our own families, in our own church, uh, we can trust you. We can find you to be all that we need and more. And so we praise you and thank you for that. And yet we admit that we're prone to wander from you. We're prone to worry and be anxious and to be fearful. Uh, We often find ourselves in the pit of despair. We often find ourselves uh, wrestling with unbelief and, and struggling to make sense of what's going on. And so we just humbly confess that um, we believe, but please help thou our unbelief. And so I just cry out to you for the grace we need to trust you and to love in these days. Whatever that may mean for each of us individually, uh, in our own lives, in our own families, in our church, whatever it may mean as a citizen of the U.S. right now, we just look to you uh, for what we need. We confess that we are not adequate for these things. And you continually give us more than we can handle, but not more than you can handle, and not more than what we can go through rejoicing and praying and giving thanks by your grace, because you've told us that your grace is sufficient, no matter what the thorn in the flesh might be. And so we rejoice in you this morning. We thank you. We pray on behalf of our country that whatever the... um, next president um, will be, Uh, we pray that you would grant that the election would be properly, justly, and rightly resolved in terms of the result. And if indeed Mr. Biden has won the election and should be the next president, then we pray that that would be confirmed through whatever um, challenges may come up. If that's not really the case, then we pray that that would be uh, brought out as well. We desire, Father, that the integrity of our uh, um, election process would be upheld in all of this, whatever the results are. Um, And we pray that you would help us to trust you, whatever those results are, and that you'd strengthen our faith in this time. Father, we um, pray that you would lead us as a body as we make some decisions about uh, this facility and 
in light of our negotiations with Commerce Park, we desire, Father, to do your will. We desire to do what would be right and wise and good. And so we just pray that you would help us and lead us as a church as we make these important decisions over the next few weeks. Father, we uh, just pray, Lord, that you would help us to rest in the Lord Jesus in light of all that he's done for us. Help us to hope in you for our help and our happiness, Father. And help us to pursue love in every relationship, in every situation. Help us to truly seek to put your word into practice, to be doers of your word and not hearers only. And help us to hold tightly to your promises. So, Father, we just commit ourselves to you as a body. We commit ourselves to you as individuals and families. And we just look forward to all that you're going to do. And we thank you for your word that helps us to see that you're a God who is in charge and you're a God who has a plan. So please encourage us this morning through your word. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray, amen. All right, well, if you would turn to Revelation chapter 1. This morning I'd like for us just to be reminded of what the very first eight verses of Revelation 1 have to say. We've all spent the week wondering who's going to be the next president, how the election is going to come out, and uh, some believe that it's already been determined that, that, it's, that it's going to be Mr. Biden. Others would say it's not yet determined yet, that there are some things that still need to be examined. Um, the reality is, if we are asking the question, who will rule over the next four years, then the real answer is found in Revelation chapter 1. And we know this. But I want us to see how it's talked about in Revelation chapter 1, and hopefully it will encourage us again um, during these uncertain times. So let me read for us these first eight verses of Revelation 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. And I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of God. The book of Revelation is one of my favorite books, along with the book of Romans. I love the book of Romans because it's the clearest explanation of the gospel. It lays out for us better than or more thoroughly than any other book in the Bible what Christ has done for us. 
I love the book of Revelation because it lays out for us um, in many ways more clearly, sometimes more obscurely, uh, the reality of what God is doing in the world. And so I love both these books, and I hope that we can get some encouragement from it this morning. In the very first verse, it starts off by saying the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation there is the word from which we get our word apocalypse. In our day and time, the idea of an apocalypse is a catastrophic event at the end of history. And obviously, what we find in the book of Revelation has to do with the end of history. No doubt about that. But the basic idea of the word is an unveiling. It's the idea that God is going to pull the curtain back and show us in the book of Revelation what is really going on behind the scenes and ultimately going to show us who's really in charge of everything that's happening. And so it's a revelation of Jesus Christ in the sense that he's showing us what is really happening behind the scenes over the course of history, but it's also about Jesus Christ in that God is going to pull back the curtain one day and show everyone who Jesus really is. And it won't be just believers that see that, but even unbelievers, indeed every eye, will see who Jesus really is. There's another aspect of this idea of apocalypse, and that is in that day and time, from about 200 B.C. to 100 A.D., there was a very popular style of writing, of literature, called apocalyptic. And it was very symbolic. It was meant to communicate through symbols. And that's why um, it says in verse 1 that God gave this message to Jesus to show to his bondservants, to his people, to those who are believing in Jesus. And he communicated it or signified it or, or showed it in the form of signs or symbols to uh, through an angel to John. And so the book is filled with symbolism and images and pictures. You could, you could say it's, a, it's the big picture book of Jesus where he shows us picture after picture after picture that is meant to communicate the reality behind what we see going on in the world. And so when our um, kids were little, um, Jan would read to our kids and show them picture books. And at times she would say things like, so what do you think is going to happen? And sometimes our children would respond in such a way that they would say, I don't know, let's just see, let's go. Don't stop. I want to find out because they wanted to see what the end was going to be. They wanted the rest of the story to be unveiled. And that's what we have in the book of Revelation, an unveiling of all that's really going on in history and an unveiling of who Jesus really is. We also see in verse 2 that it's a prophecy. Um, the prophecy, uh, or actually... Um, Verse 3, that it's a prophecy. The idea is a prof- of a prophecy is that it's a word from God. But it's a word from God in terms of what's going on and in terms of what will happen in the future as well. And the Bible tells us that blessed or truly happy are those who listen to the word of God, trust it, and obey it. And so if we ever wonder why we find ourselves not really content and happy... 
A lot of different reasons for that, but one of the major reasons is we're not trusting the Word of God, we're not seeking to apply the Word of God in our lives as we should. And John is encouraging us to realize that this revelation of Jesus is meant to be received and trusted and applied in our lives, and it certainly applies in light of what's going on in our country right now. In verse 4, we see that it's not only... An apocalypse is not only a prophecy, but it's also a letter. And that's one of the unique things about the book is that it's all three of these things at the same time. And that's why it's so difficult to understand what's going on sometimes in the book. But it says in verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. That's referring to the Roman province of Asia, which is actually modern Turkey. So you've got seven churches that are kind of located located in a circle pattern that it could be uh, that could be um, reached by going in a circular pattern, and this message could be delivered to them. But it says that this letter was given to these churches in order to communicate to them grace and peace. Grace is the enabling to handle whatever God sends your way and to trust him and obey him in the midst of those circumstances. Peace is a calmness in the face of whatever comes. And so the purpose of this book is to give us grace, enabling to trust and love no matter what comes, and to give us a peace that says, I don't have to be afraid, I don't have to worry, I can trust God in light of what is going on. And so uh, it's actually from, it says, from the Trinity. The three persons of the Trinity is mentioned, it says, from him who is and who was and who is to come, which is a reference to the Father. It's a reference to his eternality. He's present, he was before, he's going to be after It's his eternal existence and his eternal reign over everything. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And that appears to be a reference to the Holy Spirit. doesn't mean there are seven of them. It means the sevenfold spirit in the sense that seven is often used in the book of Revelation in terms of perfection. The perfect Holy Spirit. And the idea oftentimes is the idea of perfect Presence and perfect power. So the Holy Spirit is everywhere and and able to take care of everything. The Spirit is the power of God. One of the big questions in the early church was, in light of the fact that they were a persecuted people, the question was, if Jesus reigns, if he's really, you know, if he really lived and died and rose again and went ascended to the right hand of the Father and rules over everything, that's really true and we're really his people, really God's people, all those who are trusting Jesus, then why is all this happening to us? Why are we being persecuted? Why why are we being slaughtered like sheep? Why is all this happening if Jesus is really in charge? And why does he, doesn't he come back and put an end to it? And that's what the book of Revelation is intended to answer. And it tells us, if we go on and were to read um, in Revelation 5, it says in verse 1, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Uh, you could think about that in terms of speaking to those persecuted believers in the first century God is saying, I have a plan. 
And this plan is being worked out in the course of history. And you can trust me that my plan is not an unraveling, but it's an unfolding. And it's based on my love for you and my wisdom and my power to bring about all that I've promised you and all that I've purposed. And we could take some time, and maybe in the future we will, to look at this plan more clearly as it's put out in the book of Revelation. But it's a plan to exalt Jesus uh, through the proclamation of the gospel and one day by unveiling him to every eye uh, that has ever lived. It's a plan to save a people for himself and to purify that people through the cross. To purify a people through the suffering Um, that comes by trusting Jesus and following Jesus. That suffering is not meant to be something we should be surprised by. It's something that we are called to embrace as part of God's plan to glorify His Son and purify a people for Himself. Finally, it's a plan to deal with all men patiently. God doesn't come back right away and, and judge all the people that deserve to be judged. He's very patient. He also deals with men justly. But one day he will bring an end to evil and suffering. And one day he will bring heaven to earth. But right now, this is the day of salvation. This is the day of God being patient with men. And through his kindness, leading them to repentance. And so God is up to good things. And he's incredibly merciful to sinners. And that's why... Uh, he has not yet returned and established his kingdom. Well, with the time we have left, let me just highlight especially what it says in verse 5, with all that as the background. In verse 5, it talks about the third person of the Trinity or the second person of the Trinity, third in order, as mentioned here, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. It speaks of him as the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. The phrase, the faithful witness, means the faithful martyr. The one who faithfully proclaimed the truth to the very point of death. Why is that significant? Because that's the very thing he's calling his people to do. To hold on to and proclaim the truth to the very point of death, if required. And he is the one who has led the way in that. He's the faithful martyr. But he's not a dead martyr, uh, he's a resurrected martyr. And so the next phrase says, the firstborn of the dead. It means the first one to experience the resurrection from the dead in a glorified body. And he's the one who rules and reigns over the resurrection. And he will be the one who rules and reigns over who is resurrected unto life and who is resurrected unto judgment. He will be the one who determines that resurrection. And then it comes to highlighting what is really the central theme in this whole thing, and that is he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And the reason why I say that is if you read through this passage carefully, there's all kinds of references to the throne and dominion and um, being almighty and various things like that. All of those terms refer to the issue of God ruling over everything completely. There's nothing, not a, like R.C. Sproul will say, there's not a molecule or an atom that is outside of his control and his rule and his reign. And yet, 
It's an unseen rule, except for believers, except for those who are trusting in Jesus and have had their eyes opened. The world doesn't see him as ruling and reigning. One day they will, but right now the world doesn't see it that way. But it is real and it is absolute. And it's meant to encourage us no matter what happens. The second thing, and this isn't in this passage per se, but I want to bring in a few other passages like one we saw last week to highlight what that means when it says he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. And the first thing is, it means he rules over the rise and fall of rulers. Daniel chapter 4, if you want to look at Daniel chapter 4, I just want to remind you of what we talked about last week. It's the story of Nebuchadnezzar. And how God um, humbled Nebuchadnezzar. And I'm going to read verses 13 through 17 and just remind us of what is said there. Because it truly is an amazing story. It says in Daniel 4 verse 13, I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. This is Daniel speaking. And behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows. Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground. But with a band of iron and bronze around it and the new grass of the field. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. And let him share with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man. And let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command to the, of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whom he wishes, and sets over it the lowliest of men. And so, there's a sense in which God is teaching Nebuchadnezzar a, a lesson. He rules and reigns over this huge empire, but he's proud, and he thinks it's the result of his own power, and God says, I'm going to show you that it's not the result of your power, it's the result of my giving it to you, and he gives him the mind of a beast. He's driven away from his throne, he begins living like an animal, eating grass, you go on the sea where his uh, hair grows long, and they just look at him like a madman. Because he was. And it appears that that lasted seven years. The great king of uh, Babylon is acting like a madman. Then at the end of that seven years, what happens? His um, senses return to him. His reason returns to him. And they put him back in office. They put him back on the throne. Now that would never happen normally. You don't go to the insane asylum to find the next president of the United States. You don't do that. Or the next king. King's even worse because a king has much more authority than the president does. A king makes decisions that will stand whether anybody likes them or not. There isn't a legislature to overrule the king. The king has absolute authority in the realm. So you don't go some place to find a man that's been acting like an animal for the last seven years to rule and reign. So how does that happen? The only explanation is God 
puts even the lowliest of men on the throne if he sees fit. Nothing can stop God from doing what he's going to do. Not even the perceived insanity of someone. God is truly in charge of who rules and who reigns. That is meant to be a comfort to us. That's meant to say nothing's left to chance. That's meant to say that our good father is going to determine who is the next president for the next four years. It will be from the hand of God one way or the other. The second thing is, look if you will at Proverbs 21.1. In Proverbs 21, we have just uh, one statement that's very, very important for us to keep in mind, especially in light of whoever it's going to be for the next four years as our president. It says in Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. You can't find anyone who has more freedom than the king. So when you think about the idea of people being free to do what they want to do, in the Old Testament, in those times, there was no one more free than the king. The king was free to do whatever he wanted to do. King David was free to call Bathsheba to him. Uh, King David was free to do all kinds of things, whether right or wrong. Kings have absolute authority. And so the idea is God is in charge and sovereign over the most free person in the world. That he is not um, someone who can just do whatever he wants to do. He may be most free. He may be most powerful. But he's not outside of God's control. And that's very, very important for us to think about and to believe. It says, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Um, There's a story in Jeremiah talking about Nebuchadnezzar. and talking about how Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and then decided to leave because of certain circumstances. And everybody thought, oh, he's gone away. He's going to leave us alone. And God comes through Jeremiah to the, the people of Judah and says, no, I'm going to bring Nebuchadnezzar back. And he's going to burn this city. And no matter what you do, it's going to happen. Because I'm in charge of Nebuchadnezzar. And I'm going to see that it takes place. Because it's part of my judgment on you for your idolatry, for your rebellion, and for your evil. I'm going to judge evil. And so uh, we see that the Bible makes it very, very clear that uh, rulers may be the freest people on the planet, but they're not outside of God's control. Now, a lot, a lot of times we wrestle with what that act means. Does that mean that somehow if they do what's evil, God is doing what's evil? And the Bible says emphatically, no, that is not what is happening. The Bible doesn't ever say that God is the author of evil. What it says is he is the restrainer and releaser of evil. He restrains the evil of men and he releases the evil of men. But he doesn't create evil in people's hearts and make people do evil. If I have a rabid dog on the end of a chain, all I have to do uh, to let this dog attack Milan would be to let go of the chain. 
dog is just going to do what the dog wants to do. I can restrain that dog or I can release that dog, but I'm not personally the one growling and wanting to attack Milan. God in his wisdom, mercy, grace, and love can restrain evil people, can restrain evil rulers, or he can release them to do all kinds of evil. He did that with Nebuchadnezzar. He released Nebuchadnezzar to attack and destroy Jerusalem and to burn the city and to destroy the temple. And then, if you read your Old Testament, you find out God says, now I'm going to judge Nebuchadnezzar for doing it. I'm going to punish Nebuchadnezzar for doing it. Why? Because he did it for evil purposes, for an evil agenda, because of hate, and because of he's the rabid dog that wants to destroy. But that was not the heart of God. God's intent was to do something good, to judge evil and to bring his people to repentance. And so he judges evil. But he may restrain evil, he may release it, but he is not the author of it. And so over the next four years... God may restrain evil in various ways, or he may release evil in various ways. But we can trust him, whatever it it is, whatever happens. And he calls us to trust him. The next thing is, um, Jesus rules over the purposes accomplished through rulers. Um, If you read in Jeremiah, and I've been spending a lot of time lately in the book of Jeremiah, Um, several different times it uses the phrase Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, my servant. Um, One of those is in Jeremiah uh, 25, verse 9, where he says, Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land. In Jeremiah 27, 6, he says, Now I have given all these lands... And to the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. Nebuchadnezzar was a, a pagan who worshipped other gods. He, he wasn't doing it for God's sake. He wasn't intending to serve God, but he was the servant of God. It says in Jeremiah 43.10, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am going to send and get Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I am going to set his throne right over these stones. And so rulers, authorities, presidents are all servants of God. And in that, God will use them to accomplish his good purposes. He will use whoever the next president is to accomplish his good purposes. Now, those good purposes might include bringing judgment on our country because of the evil of our country. But that's still a good purpose. It's good that God judges evil. It's good that God calls men to repentance through that means. So what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to think about this? And let me just wrap this up this morning. Again, in verses 5 and 6, it says, in light of the fact that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth, it says, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Jesus rules over everything as one who loves his people. Therefore, he will make no decisions. He will not restrain or release evil except as it is an expression of his love for his people. It will only be as a part of his love for us. So whatever happens, we should receive it as God loving us. That's the way he wants us 
to believe and to see what is ha- happening. And we we're to, re- to see it as not God punishing us as his people, but to know that we've been released from condemnation. We've been released from punishment. We may suffer as a part of a rebellious, evil nation in various ways, but that doesn't mean we're being condemned. That doesn't mean God is punishing us as his people. We've been forgiven of our sins. And so we need not think about it that way. Um, he's also included us in his rule. It says in verse 6, he's made us to be a kingdom. And we're to be priests to his God and Father. What does that mean? Well, in the midst of whatever happens, I'm to, be, I'm to represent men before God and God before men. That means I'm to pray. I'm to represent men before God. I'm to pray for my country. I'm to pray for my uh, community. I'm to pray, represent men before God, and I'm to represent God before men. I'm to speak the truth about what is really happening. I'm to speak the gospel into these circumstances. And the Bible says, To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever, which means Jesus' rule is never going to end. And we need not be afraid that it's going to end if so-and-so becomes president. His rule continues. Well, the last thing is just to see what it says in verses 7 and 8, where he says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. I believe that's a reference to the return of Christ. The idea of coming back in clouds in the Bible often uh, is the idea of the divine presence and often in terms of judgment. And when it says every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, it means that those who have rejected Christ will see that they've rejected the ruler of the universe. And it says that they will mourn over him. They will beat, beat their breast in mourning is the picture there. And I think the idea is that as it says in Second Thessalonians 1, Jesus is going to return. He's going to return to rescue his people and to bring judgment on those who refuse to bow the knee to King Jesus. And that's what's being pictured here. And so the call is, for your own good, bow the knee to King Jesus. There's no better king. As uh, the Queen of Sheba said to Solomon, um, because God loved Israel, he, he made you king. If God makes Jesus your king, it's because he loves you. There's no better king to have than King Jesus. No greater, better king to submit to. Then the last verse in verse 8 says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Those are the, the, that's the first and last letter in the Greek alphabet. So God is saying, I am the A and I'm the Z. What does that mean? It means I'm in charge of everything from A to Z. I'm on the A, B, C, D, all the way through Z. I'm, I'm everything. I'm the beginning and the middle and the end. I'm in charge of everything. That's why it goes on to say, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The Almighty means I'm the one with all power and all dominion. There's no part of this world and of this life and of history that I don't rule and reign over it. Let me conclude with just an illustration. Uh, I've mentioned this before. It's one of my favorite ones. Corrie ten Boom, who suffered under the Nazis during World War II as a believer, 
and struggled greatly with what God was doing there. Uh, Afterwards would testify to God's goodness, even in the midst of those very, very difficult circumstances. And she would often talk about how uh, what God is doing in the world is like a tapestry. Tapestry being a picture that's woven into a cloth. And she would say, uh, what we see down here is the underside of the tapestry. We just see the the knots and the the various uh, uh, strings and and things that have been woven together, but we might see a faint image, but we really can't tell for sure what is going on because we're looking at the back side of the tapestry. But she would say, God sees the other side of the tapestry, and one day he's going to flip it over for us, and we're going to see the other side of the tapestry, and we're going to worship him forever when we see it. It's going to be an unveiling of the right side of the tapestry. And there was a poem that she would uh, use along with that illustration uh, that's called The Master Weaver's Plan. And I'll close with this. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors. He weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. doesn't mean we control God. It just simply means we submit to whatever he chooses to do. We submit to his choice, his decision, and we trust him that he loves us, that he cares about us, that he knows what we're going through, and that his grace is sufficient. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We pray that as we've spent this just brief amount of time looking at your word. I pray that you would encourage our hearts. I pray that we would believe that you are the master weaver and that you're weaving a beautiful tapestry that one day you will, will unveil before the eyes of every single person and that your people will worship you forever because of it. We thank you that we can trust you. We love you and we bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.